Luke chapter 5. What is your occupation? Some of you say, I don't have an occupation, I'm just a kid. My job is to live at home and to go to school. I don't really have any job beyond that. There are others of you that say, my occupation, well, I'm in between jobs right now. Or my occupation, well, I have a job, but I'm really hoping it's temporary. It's not a career as such. It's just something that I'm doing to stay alive right now. My job is. Others might say, my occupation is the unpaid position of raising children. My job, I'm a mom. A number of you could answer that you own a business or work for an employer. There's a business that hires you a hospital, a school, a corporation, a government agency, or something. You have an employer. But one reason that we are gathered here this morning from so many walks of life is that we all share a single occupation as God's people. If God has saved you, He has chosen you to serve as an instrument through which He will influence other people. If you are a Christian, your occupation is to go get people for God. To gather them. To rescue them for Jesus. Perhaps no individual in Scripture apart from the Apostle Paul learned this truth more dramatically than did Simon Peter. Simon was a fisherman by trade, you will remember. He worked first and third shift. And probably, on most days, worked them both. His office was a boat, as archaeology has discovered and brought up from the floor of the Sea of Galilee. His boat probably would have been about 8 feet wide and somewhere around 25 feet in length. That was typical of the, these larger fishing boats that would hold many nets. He rowed to work. R-O-W-E-D, didn't he? And his business was located on the waters of beautiful Lake Galilee in northern Palestine. A lake about 14 miles long, about 8 miles wide. If you can picture this, about a third less the size of Lake Malax. That was his world. That's where he worked. And believe me, commercial fishing is a strenuous occupation in our own day, certainly in that day. It was very difficult work. Simon and his partners would drop hundreds of pounds of dragnet into the waters. They would drop them in a large semicircle, then pull their nets back into the boat hand over hand. And once they drew that net in and emptied it of any fish, they would go out and drop it again and again and again throughout the night. Imagine the arms and the hands on these men as they would pull in those heavy, wet nets time after time after time through the night. As we enter Luke chapter 5, Peter and his fishing partners are dog-tired. 
They have fished through the night and are now on the shoreline washing their nets in the lake. They're standing probably on the shallow shore there and swishing their nets clean of sand and pebbles and seaweed. Soon they will hang those nets out to dry, then fold them up and lay them back in their boats and catch some sleep before they go out to fish again the next night. Now remember, Simon has already met Jesus. In fact, I believe as we put the accounts together that Jesus has already called Simon to follow him in a unique way. But it appears, it's quite apparent actually here, that Simon is still fishing. He still is carrying on his occupation. Now only the brightest, let's go back into the culture just for a moment longer, only the brightest of young men, the most intellectually gifted, the very cream of the crop were given the opportunity to follow a rabbi as a disciple. Through a very careful system, these young men would be weeded out, and much of it depended upon their ability to memorize basically the Old Testament, or massive chunks of it, and to have a very good grasp of theological truth at a very young age. That was the test that they went through. The very cream of the crop would go from their various villages and towns and would go to Jerusalem and would find, secure, a rabbi. Well, like probably every one of us sitting here, Simon didn't make the cut. He apparently loved God, but his mind was not that sharp and that capable to be chosen as one of the unique disciples of a rabbi in Jerusalem. But here came this unconventional rabbi and said to Simon Peter, now a commercial fisherman, I want you to follow me. And I can imagine Peter saying, me? I'm a fisherman. I'm not a disciple. But Jesus chose this man to follow. Now as I said, there's, there's sort, there seems to be a developing call at this point, Peter has met Jesus down on the Jordan River at the time of his baptism and later at his temptation. We don't know precisely the chronology there, but he knows who Jesus is and has gone up to Galilee to follow him there. And of course, this is where Peter lives, but he's still fishing. So here he is on the shores of Galilee, washing his nets with his partners after a long night of toil on the lake, and Jesus apparently wants to meet Peter this day. He wants to talk to him, so he makes his way down to where he knows that Peter will be. I don't believe this is a chance happening at all, and I suppose that's theoretically possible, but Jesus knows where Peter parks his boat. He knows where he's going to come in after the night, and he wants to talk to Peter. He wants to lead him further into discipleship here. And as he's going... The crowd presses around Jesus and follows him to the waterfront. And in these first three verses of Luke chapter 5, we find here, if we could put a heading on it, that Peter lends his boat to Jesus, very simply. Verse 1, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake Gennesaret, another name for the lake of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Let's stop for a moment. Once again, we see Jesus teaching God's Word. That's significant, isn't it, in, in our understanding of the book of Luke. Luke repeatedly emphasizes that Jesus is a teacher. He's a healer. He is an exorcist. He is a teacher. He delivers people from demonic influence. 
He delivers people from illness and disease, and he teaches truth that directly conflicts with the worldview that is everywhere around. Jesus, again, is teaching. And as he walks to meet Simon, this crowd presses a little too anxiously around him. Jesus sees an ingenious solution to it. Verse 2, he sees these fisher, uh, the boats of these fishermen there as they're washing their nets. They're empty. And so he comes up with an idea. Verse 3, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, obviously, there's a lot there that's not filled in. Apparently, he asked Peter if he may use his boat, and Peter apparently steps into the boat and rows out a little bit from shore. So here is Peter. I get the picture of him sitting behind Jesus as Jesus is on the boat, pointing into the shore so that he can speak to the people, and his words, of course, would carry across the water, and he probably didn't have to go out too very far to keep them away. And... Nobody wanted to be waterlogged anyway, listening to uh, someone preach. So here he is, right in front of the people in the boat, and Peter's probably behind him. It would indicate, and the next verse will indicate as well, that he's in the boat. And he's got to be dog-tired. He's worked all night pulling in heavy nets. And I don't think Peter probably has any problem at all catching a quick sermon before bed. And so he sits and listens to Jesus teach the people. Now the next section we head into here is Jesus catching fish for Peter. That's irony. There's great irony in this whole text. In this section of verses 4 through 10a, very poor verse division there in verse 10, but 4 through 10a is Jesus catching fish for Peter, ironically. Notice verse 4. When he had finished speaking, as Jesus is preaching to the people standing there on the shore, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now in this section, what we're going to see, in this, as the narrative plays out, we see Jesus act and we see Peter react. Jesus acts twice. And Peter reacts twice. He responds to what Jesus does. So Jesus had a specific purpose to accomplish with Simon this day, and he starts by issuing a rather strange request. He says, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch, verse 4. Well, Simon was pleased enough to let Jesus use his boat for a floating pulpit. No big deal to row out a few feet from the shore and to catch a morning sermon. But Simon knew Jesus already. He was happy to help him in his ministry, certainly. But what is up with this request? Now Jesus has sort of stepped over a line. He's a carpenter. Peter's the fisherman. You mean dump all our nets back in the boat and go back out into the water to go fishing again? This is what Jesus commands, verse 4, now Simon responds, verse 5, he answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. The Greek word for nets here that is used in this passage are the uh, deep water drag nets, not the shallow nets that could be used and are maybe particularly helpful in the daytime on shallow water where you can see fish and drop those smaller nets in. These are the big nets. This is hard work, and he's got to go back out into the boat with these nets. He's been fishing all night. It's time for some rest. So Simon says, essentially, if we could put it in our own words, Jesus, our shift is over. Got to understand this. 
And even though you are a carpenter by trade, you know dragnet fishing doesn't do well in the daytime. That's not when you do the, the, the deep sea stuff. This is night work. It's daytime. And we've fished all night and caught nothing out there. How are we going to catch anything now that it's daytime? But notice what Simon says next. And I believe the rest of his life hinges on this response. He says, But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Jesus, this makes no sense. But because you say I should do it, I will do it. In that crucial moment, Simon did exactly what Adam and Eve chose not to do with the forbidden fruit in the garden. Simon obeyed Christ's command even though to do so ran contrary to his own instincts. Simon set his feelings and his personal opinions on the shelf. He said, I have a word from Jesus, and I have these instincts as a fisherman and my own feelings running through his whole body right about now. He puts all of that aside and he said, Jesus, you said it, I'll do it. Now, Peter is a disciple, and that's the job a disciple is to do, to follow his rabbi, to follow his master and do what his master says. But Peter doesn't try to pull rank here, he just says, you've said it, I will do it. And I would like to suggest this morning as we think about this, that if you have never had that experience yourself, I have no idea how you could truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you genuinely belong to Christ, then you know what it means to obey God's word even when his command seems irrational and does not feel good. You know that experience. If you are a follower of Jesus, you know what it is to obey by faith. It gets very frightening to meet Christians whose only obedience comes when it doesn't demand faith. To follow Jesus means you will need to obey God when it does not make sense. That's just what Peter does. I don't get it, Jesus, but because you command it, I will do it. Now Jesus responds again. And, of course, God knows all of this, has ordained it all, and it's part of his sovereign plan, but I think we could say hypothetically, had Peter said, listen, that's not your business, I'm going to bed. That would have been the last day of his life as a disciple. But he responds. Jesus leads him further and now acts again. We notice Jesus' gift to Peter of this great catch of fish. Verse 6, When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. We cannot imagine how this must have hit these fishermen. You just think of what's going through their mind as they're rowing out back into the same lake again, saying it's, it's for the rabbi. You know, just do it. He said to do it. Who knows why we're doing this, but just do it. 
And they're dropping those nets going, man, we just got these all cleaned out and they were just about dry and here we are dropping them in again. We're going to have to do all this again and we've already worked all the way through the night. Now time's passing and we're getting far into the day. We're tired. What is going And all of a sudden, the nets pull and they realize they've got a catch. And they begin to haul that catch in and find that it is extremely heavy, filled with fish. And calling to their other partners, there seem to be two levels of partners here in the text. Those that are working as general partners of Peter and maybe his specific associates, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But at any rate, they're communicating to one another. And the text indicates that they are communicating with head nods and probably with voices too. But the point is their hands are full. They are pulling on these, on these nets and they can't let go or they'll lose a tremendous catch of fish. They know that. They can feel the tug. And they're calling and nodding, not using their hands, but they're calling and saying, come over and help us pull this thing in. Now, we're not told how Jesus connected these fishermen with this school of fish. I, I don't know if he was able to see something, if it was just a miraculous turn to know how God works would indicate that these are not created fish at the moment, but were a school of fish that were brought together, nudged together, and brought to this point in the lake by the sovereign hand of God. All that we know is that this was a miracle. A miracle intended to arrest Simon's attention, and this it does. The nets are breaking, the boats are sinking, Perhaps as the other fishermen are scooping excess fish back into the sea to keep that from happening, Simon Peter is overwhelmed by what has happened. Simon Peter was an emotional man. You could light his torch pretty quickly, but you will look long and hard among the disciples to find others who love Jesus as much. There was emotion to his love, an emotion to his understanding of Christ, and he responds very emotionally here, suddenly saving his boat and securing his catch was of no importance to this enterprising fisherman. And we find then the second response of Peter. The first response, I don't get it, but I will do it. The second response is also highly commendable. Verse 8, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He's overwhelmed by this miracle, falls down apparently right there in the boat as Jesus is sitting down with his knees sticking out, and so his head is right at Jesus' knees. It's a very descriptive line. There he is, bowing before Christ. And what does Simon Peter not say? That's almost as important as what he says. I could see Simon Peter falling down before Jesus and saying, Jesus, will you please be our fishing guide from now on? I, I, I will pay you very well for your services. Could you please just go with us from now on? We'll get the fish, we'll sell the fish, we'll make a big profit. What do you say? Please. It's not what he says. Simon doesn't either become all wrapped up with the miracle, does he? Wow! How did you do that? That is amazing. I've never seen anything like this in my life. 
and turn all of the attention to the miracle and to the fish. I do not think that Simon Peter has a full-orbed sense of Jesus' divine nature at this point in time. But what he did know is that the power of God was working through this rabbi in a unique way that he had never seen before and could not fully understand. Now, he'd seen Jesus perform miracles, I believe by this point, we don't know that entirely, but it seems that he had. Certainly in the text in Luke, his mother-in-law has been healed of a fever immediately in her home, and Peter was there watching that. But for some reason, coming right into his world as a fisherman, Peter was shaken right to the core of his being and said, I am in the presence of a man of God like I've never seen before. What does he say? I am a sinful man. Depart from me. Jesus, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to part ways. You see the dramatic response here. Not, Jesus, can we partner together and you be our fishing guide? But Jesus, we're going to have to part ways. I'm a sinner who has no business in the presence of the likes of you. I'll row you back to shore, and you go on your way, and you find another disciple. It's been a distinct honor to know you, but we've got to part ways. I'm not worthy to be your disciple. In that moment, Peter vividly sensed that he was as spiritually empty as his nets had been the preceding night empty of fish. He realized in that moment he was spiritually poor and blind and naked and unworthy of following Jesus. But what are the next words in the text? The words from Jesus are, don't be afraid. Now, as you notice there, in verse 9, he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they were, and that they had taken, and so were James and John and the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. He's not the only one there, but Luke is telling the narrative in a way that he wants us to focus on Peter and Peter's response. There were others who were just as awed. They realized, too, their weakness before God, his holiness and his transcendence. These partners of Peter. But Jesus has caught fish for Peter. And now Jesus turns to Peter and says, I want you to catch fish for me. You see the irony? A carpenter has caught literal fish for a fisherman. And now a common fisherman is going to catch souls for the Savior. 
Jesus calls in verse 10 to Simon. He said to Simon, don't be afraid. I want to focus on that part, but from now on you will catch men. Let's think about that. Don't be afraid. What do you hear there? Do we not hear echoes from the corridors of grace? I hear the echoes from the corridors of grace. Adam and Eve sin. And what do we hear from the divine mouth? Adam, where are you? Which being interpreted as, Adam, don't be afraid. Come out of the bushes and talk to me. We hear echoes from the halls of grace. Isaiah 6, remember that in the presence of the sovereign, holy God of the universe. Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. Cursed am I. I deserve to be judged and destroyed as I stand before God. What does God do? Sends an angel, takes a coal from the altar, and cauterizes Isaiah's lips. He says, in a sense, don't be afraid. Remember those distraught, distraught shepherds at Bethlehem? Scare anybody out of their wits. You're watching your sheep at night, and here comes this angel, stands there in brilliant light. What does he say? Don't be afraid. A Savior has been born this night. And here Jesus takes that same echo from the halls of grace and puts it on his own tongue and speaks peace to Peter. Don't be afraid. What hope is in those words. Yes, Peter, you're a sinner, but do not fear. The person who must fear the wrath of God is the person who thinks that he or she is adequate before God. Peter, you've just walked into the door. The inside of that door, there's no fear. You have understood that you are a sinner. That's what I've come to do. Rescue sinners. Don't be afraid. Those who fall in abject spiritual poverty before the Lord are those who find mercy before His throne. Those who sense a humble need to run from God's holy presence find a God of smiling grace. Yes, Peter, you are a sinner, but do not fear. I asked earlier, have you come to that place in your experience where you understand Peter's experience? And he obeyed God when it didn't make sense. Have you had this experience? Have you come to that place in your life where you've been overwhelmed with a sense of your total unworthiness of God's love and friendship? This is not the way of Christianity that simply eases into the facts of the Christian faith and feels comfortable with those facts over time. Those who come to God are those who come on their knees and their face before Him knowing that in me dwells nothing good. They come broken. They come empty. They come fallen. Have you had that experience? And have you in those moments of time of broken humility had your heart surge with the joy of these words? Do not fear. Don't fear. If you have no sense 
that you are unworthy of God's love because of your sin. And if you have never known the joy of God meeting you in your need, I have no idea how you are truly a follower of Christ. Do not fear. Don't be afraid, Simon. Notice the next phrase there from Jesus' lips at the end of verse 10. From now on you will catch men. From now on, Peter, you have a new occupation. It will be your life quest to drop the gospel dragnet into the sea of humanity and to pull out every soul you can rescue for God. You have fished for fish. I have fished for your fish. And now your job will be to fish for my fish with me. To fish for people. I have filled your boat with fish. I now want you to fill my kingdom with people. Daryl Bach says in his commentary, that was the last time they spent the day just as fishermen. Now that's not a profound statement as far as the words that are used, but that says it all with Peter's experience that day. That was the last day he was just a fisherman. From now on, they would have a new occupation that would pervade everything else that they did. And that was just fine with them. Verse 11. So they pulled their boats up to shore, up on shore, left everything, and followed him. It is possible they sold the fish, stored their boats and nets, or put them in the care of others, but the verse sure doesn't read that way. And at any rate, that's not the emphasis of the text. The text is they left everything. That's what Luke wants us to consider without knowing the details of what that meant. Did they leave the fish rotting in the boat? We don't know, and that really doesn't matter. What matters is they left it all for Christ. Total abandonment of their way of life for a new occupation. The orientation of their lives had been fundamentally altered. They were no longer fishermen for fish. They now were fishing for people. And with their days as fishermen, there was a great analogy for what this would take. They were going to have to work together as partners. Remember, they're not fishing with a lure on the end of a pole. They're fishing with massive nets. It means they had to cooperate together. They knew, and this new fishing would also take work, long, hard, exhausting hours of work, late nights, early mornings. There would be days with little or nothing to show for their efforts. And this miracle, this great catch, would always remind them any catch of souls that they would take for God would have to come through His power and through His working. Peter walked out of that boat, as did James and John. They walked away with a new job. And that was just fine with them. Now there's so much that challenges us as God's people from Peter's experience in this narrative. But before we focus there for a few moments, let's say what it does not say to us. Is Jesus saying to us, 
All of you to be my follower need to quit your job, leave everything that you have, and follow me by being a full-time evangelist. Obviously, that's not what is going on here, for there were many disciples that Jesus did not call to follow him. We're in the ancient context here of individuals chosen as followers of a rabbi who will go with him everywhere and do everything that he does. Jesus limited that number to 12. Not every disciple was to lay down their secular occupation and become a full-time evangelist. In fact, for some to do so would have been disobedience, and Jesus, I think, would have dismissed them. And look at how much of his life is spent getting away from the crowds. He doesn't want everyone with him all the time. These men are being chosen as the apostolic foundation of the church. Their calling is unique. But God does call each of us to fish for people as a life occupation. We know that from passages such as Matthew 28, 19, and 20, or 18 through 20. The authority is from the Lord who calls us to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel. To call out people with this gospel out of the world and into the life of God. And all we need is Luke's other writing, the book of Acts, to see that this is how the early church took itself. The occupations were different. The physical, external, secular occupations were different. But the early church worked together as fishers of men. Are you a Christian? Do you know the Lord as your Savior? If God has saved you, you are His instrument through whom He delights to influence others for His glory. If you are a Christian, your occupation is to go get people for God. That's all of us. Our lives are to be thoroughly oriented toward reaching others with the gospel. This is our job. It's our occupation. It's our way of life. God did not give you a job. Do you have a job? Do you have an occupation? Do you have employment? God did not give you that job to simply earn money and stay alive. He gave you that job as a staging ground from which to influence other people with the gospel. You don't have a job there and then this other side job that we do once in a while. Your physical job is a staging ground for your reaching others with the gospel of Christ. Do you enjoy a sport? Are you able to play on a team? Jesus has not given you a body and physical abilities to be playing on that team simply to have fun with your body, simply to enjoy exercise. He's given you that ability as a staging ground where you can meet people and influence them with the gospel of Christ. That's your job. 
Has God in His providence placed you in a public school? If He has, you're not there simply to get an education. You're there to meet people that you can bring to God. That's why He's put you there, in part. Do you own a house? Do you live somewhere? Even if you lived under a bridge, God did not give you a place to pillow your head at night, a place to enjoy the yard, a place to eat your meals and to sleep at night, simply to take care of your body. He put you in a neighborhood because there are people there that you need to meet and need to point to Christ. Now, all of these areas apply differently to all of us, but my point is we need to realize that we are not given life simply to glut it on ourselves. We are given life and opportunities to fish for people. We have no business living a life in which all we do is mind our own business. We have no business settling homes and consuming products and raising children and chasing entertainment and building retirement funds with no thought of a lost world. Our occupation, your God-assigned occupation, Christian, is to go get people for God. With that in view then let's stop and contemplate Peter's experience just for a few moments. We find, I think, the key element in this text is, first of all, his obedience. Jesus said, do this, and Peter, against all his own wisdom and instincts, did it. And in like manner, we, as God's people, need to push out into the deep and let down our evangelistic dragnet for souls. That's hard work. It doesn't always make sense. Certainly it makes no sense that anyone would ever listen. But what we need to do is obey. To trust in faith and do what God calls us to do. We find in Peter's experience, secondly, humility. We must proceed in this occupation with broken hearts. We cannot go to bring people to Christ with an attitude of pride. Nor can we go with an attitude that we know how to do this. It's just a matter of doing the right things and pulling the right strings. We must go at this project with a broken heart that admits that we we stand before Christ, the great winner of souls, in abject spiritual poverty. We have nothing to give Him. What did Peter leave behind to follow Christ? The boat, the fish, the nets, the partners in this operation. He left it all. Jesus didn't say, now, man, you've got a lot of good stuff here. Bring it along and maybe we can work together on catching fish, catching people. He said to Peter, leave it behind and come follow me. The only thing Peter brought with him beside the clothes on his back was a heart that was humble 
and ready to be taught by Jesus, the great winner of souls. That's all he brought, and that's all you can bring. That's all that I can bring. We cannot come having it all figured out. All that we have to give God is a broken heart. We must obey him. We must come with humble heart. And thirdly, from the life of Peter, we see this call to a life occupation. And I would call us, our situation is so very different, but we need to live a life where we relate to people with the express purpose of pointing them to the light of the gospel and the love of Christ. Did, did you hear that? We need to relate to people always with the express purpose of pointing them to Christ. That's how we need to relate to people in this world. That needs to be our orientation. That needs to be our occupation. Now that does, mean, does not mean that every person that we see, we knock down, pin on the ground with our knees on their shoulders, and get them told. I actually met a boy that did just that. <laughs> he told me this. Tackled his friend, put his knees on his shoulder, and he said, and I done got him told, he said. He, could, he lived south of the Mason-Dixon line. But, I mean, for all the zeal that I appreciate, that's not how you draw people to Christ. You just get them told. But in everything that we do, we must remember, this is our occupation. And so we need to reach into our world. You need to reach into your world. There's a certain world that you inhabit. Job contacts, school contacts, neighborhood, family, friends. There's a certain world that you know. In that world, we need to make purposeful effort to touch that world with the gospel of Christ. We need to reach our neighborhood here as a church. How do we do that? Oh, I don't know. I don't have the answers. We've tried a number of things. But let me just say, ask you what you are doing to reach this neighborhood for Christ. I would imagine if all that we ever did was go from house to house and knock on the door, we'd have this place covered if we all participated in probably a couple of Saturdays. There's got to be something more to it than that. But there are times, and recently this summer, times where we schedule to go from house to house and to meet people. And to try, our attempt was to try to bring them to a place of Bible study. We're still nurturing a few of those contacts. I invited a man this week to the Bible study on Thursday that I met this last summer in the neighborhood. And others are doing the same. How do you fit into that? Maybe through contact, maybe through Bible study, but we need to begin to make contacts with people in your neighborhood and in this neighborhood to study Scripture together. Wednesday nights. I was absolutely floored. Wednesday night. I went out with the teens and we took an advertisement just for teenagers. And I thought, man, if we get rid of 12, I mean, we were going to hand them two teenagers on the street, not knowing where they live and go up to their house. We just had these flyers to say, we'd like you to come on Wednesday night to our teen meeting. 
And I, I looked at that stack and said, there's, there's not that many teens out there. Maybe 50 or 60 flyers, I don't know. I knew two teens' address and foolishly forgot to get them before the evening started, and I shared this with the men yesterday, but I was looking for the address. I finally got the address. I wasn't out of the parking lot, and a group came back and said, we're out of flyers. And through that night, on Wednesday night, we talked to all kinds of kids about our Wednesday night uh, kids club and YWAP that couldn't come to the teen meeting and had no idea anything was going on here Wednesday night. I had a whole group of kids around me telling them about, you can come next Wednesday night. Well, can we come right now? No, it's a little too late to come right now, but you can come next Wednesday night. You know how many of them are going to remember that next Wednesday night there's a meeting? Probably none. Maybe one. Is there someone would God put it in your heart to go around on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock instead of at 7 o'clock like we did and bring some kids in? They're willing to come. They're just not going to remember what Wednesday night is. And could we fill up the building with young kids that need to hear the gospel of Christ on Wednesday nights? Are there children in your neighborhood that, you know, honestly, if you'd just get it done and work a little bit harder, get home a little bit earlier, and make it a purposeful endeavor, you could bring them with you on Wednesday nights to church? Thursday nights. We have a Bible study here. Are we working to see adults come? Are we working, could we work to establish an outreach on Thursday nights? I really see no reason why we couldn't fill this building up on Thursday nights. Why not? We don't have to have one Bible study here. Let's have 15 Bible studies here. Grab some people that you know, meet some people in the neighborhood, in some way beg God to provide the opportunity and prepare a study. All you've got to do is share with them what you know. And if they graduate from your class in three weeks, then you've done your job and sent them on to a harder class. But what could we do even with young people in our neighborhood on Thursday nights? Bringing a mass of kids here on Wednesday night might cause some difficulties. What could we do on Thursday night? We could have English classes. We could tutor children in school. We could set up courses on finances or parenting meet with people in some other way and use this building every Thursday night as a staging ground to reach people in this neighborhood with the gospel. Sunday school. Is there someone you can bring along? Start a class. We'll find a place for you. Start a class. Bring them along. Set you up with some curriculum and teach them as long as they'll keep coming and then graduate them to another class after they come to know Christ. Two Sundays from today, we have our Friend Sunday. That's a unique opportunity to bring somebody here to hear the gospel presented very specifically. Have you thought about October 12th and Friend Sunday? Has it crossed your mind? Past just maybe seeing it in the bulletin? Is there somebody who you're nurturing and seeking to bring along and to invite on that day?
Do you have anybody in view? Is there anybody you could bring? Now, I say these things not for some big rah-rah meeting. I say these things to say we have to think. We've got to be purposeful. This isn't going to happen just as some magnetic force comes from our building and people just begin to attach on. Our job is to go out and fish. Our job is to row out into this world and to let down the net and to do what we can to meet people with the gospel of Christ. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? With what effectiveness are we doing it? Now, I, you know, it's really easy here to turn on the heat, screw down the screws, and make everybody absolutely miserable. How many people are we leading to Christ on a regular basis? Well, no one can stand up and say, I'm, I'm the example to the church in that matter. Nor do we need to push ourselves necessarily beyond what we can handle. We shouldn't. But we can think, and we can plan, and we can work. And if we don't, we are in danger of going to meet God, having done nothing but keep our bodies alive, to entertain our minds, and to just sort of enjoy life. Well, those things are good in and of themselves. But there's an enjoyment that Peter got in following Jesus that superseded the best catch he'd ever made. And if we will look to this occupation and we will go after it, we will find joys that can be found no other way. Let's go. It's time to row. We've got to obey humbly, and we've got to occupy ourselves with this task. Will you join me? Will we change? Will we move forward to the glory of Christ? Let's ask him to help us to that end. Lord, sometimes being a disciple is frightening. We're not sure if we're more excited or more scared. I'm sure those thoughts welled up in Peter's heart. I'm leaving everything that I know. What am I getting into? God, sometimes we feel that way as we strive to reach others with the gospel of Christ, but I pray with all my heart that you will move in the hearts of your people to change and to develop and to become good fishers of souls. God, we need you. We are so thankful for the people that are sitting here right now in this auditorium that have come to saving faith in Christ and followed him in baptism and identified with our assembly. God, we long to see more. We long to do a better job to occupy ourselves more effectively, more specifically, more redemptively, more fruitfully. Please help each of us to put forth this endeavor to do the work of an evangelist, even in the midst of our secular occupations. May we realize that this is our work above all else. Humble us and teach us faith in this endeavor. Lord, we long for fruit. And I pray that you will move in the hearts of your people, our young people, 
our adults, those that know a lot of people, those who don't know many at all. And I pray that you will move us to do, Lord, what only you can lead us to do. Grant us this fruit. Help us, Lord, I pray, to proclaim the gospel of Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. If you just remain seated.